When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode number 206 is Eric Goulden, known professionally through most of his career as Reckless Eric. You're right now hearing his 1977 single, Whole Wide World, later included on two of his albums and subsequently covered by the Proclaimers, Billy Joe Armstrong, and Will Ferrell in the Stranger Than Fiction soundtrack, among others. He's recorded about 19 albums, most under the Reckless Eric moniker, but also as the Len Bright Combo, Captains of Industry, Le Beat Group Electrique, Hitsville House Band, one actually as Eric Goulden, and three with his wife Amy Rigby. We'll be discussing the song Standing Sunday Morning from his newest album, Leisureland, 2023, Another Drive-In Saturday by Reckless Eric and Amy Rigby from their self-titled album from 2008, and Depression by Le Beat Group Electrique from their self-titled album from 1989. We'll conclude by listening to Father to the Man from Transience, his album from 2019. For more information, please see RecklessEric.com. It's Reckless starting with a W. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And to support the effort, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will play a little bit of Whole Wide World, the 1977 single included on your uh, self-titled album in 1978, just to orient folks. If you're looking for a digital version of it... Don't get it from a download of one of my albums because they're all wrong. They're all sped up. They're horrible. The true version, the real genuine single version, the one that everyone knew and loved that is available is on the Stranger Than Fiction soundtrack. That's so funny that, you know, this is the one song that you're most known for, which I guess I read was not actually like a hit single at the time that is just been used for enough things or no you know it was kind of a hit in all but selling uh you know thousands of copies in the chart return shop it, it didn't do that so it was never in the hit parade which was a blessing really it never went away right i probably the monkeys version is the first one that i'd heard of it but certainly you know i saw the the will ferrell singing it in a movie i don't know that i recognized that it was a pre-existent song when seeing it. So it wasn't until, you know, getting into this interview that, oh, that's that guy. That's what that song's actually from. It was included after being a single on my first album. And when they put the album out in the mastering, they sped it up because that made it sound more poppy, apparently, until I sounded like I was on helium. Well, let's get to the the present. What, 30 albums? Many albums later. It's quite a lot of records one way or another, yeah, I suppose. I don't think... uh, Different names, different band names, now all being repackaged under your own name, right? Or under Reckless Eric, I should say. I think they all have that name on them now because otherwise no one will buy them. (laughs) I'm I'm quite saleable now. (laughs) 
Yes. Yeah, so Leisure Land 2023, the, the new one, the song you had picked was Standing Sunday Morning. Do you want to say a little before we insert it about where you're at with this album and this song in particular? I thought this one was a, a surefire hit off the album, but it always gets overlooked. So when I got the choice, I went, I want that one played. And it's, I suppose it's very English. It's a shish kebab rub shoulders with a Chinese takeaway is the first line, which I think is terribly English, although it's not English at all, I suppose. Shish kebab certainly aren't English, but that's the general scene of a high street, you know, in England. There's always a bus. America doesn't really have buses like England has buses. When you get to being over 65, you can go anywhere on a bus for free. Imagine that. You just get on there, waft your card at them, and then you can go and sit on the seat that reserved for old people, unless you don't want to sit on that seat, though, because it's quite often a bit damp. But um, I always thought standing Sunday morning was a very, very grey day, and there's litter and newspapers blowing down the street, and there's a belligerence about it. And uh, this is a town that I made up for the Leisureland album, the town of Standing Water. It's... The real England, I hope, you know, it's not the sort of like the kind of Disney World version or even the kind of uh, Ray Davies Village Green Preservation version. There are no China Cups and virginity and standing water. It's much more real and visceral than that. Hungover and belligerent creeping under stairs. Let's play the song and we can talk about it more.
So I was thinking, you know, this is the drone song that you got your Indian drone. There's not actually like a sitar on here, right? It's just, this is just the way that you've... No, on this one, it's a couple of analog synthesizers. One of them being a, a Moog Opus. Do you want me to talk about the equipment? Because I can do forever and ever. Sure, because that, I mean, it's the drone itself is established seemingly by guitars, but you know, the thing when you hit the emphasis points, it's these giant boogs, I guess, right? It's a Moog and a Novation base station, an old Mark I base station. Now, the Mark I base station has 10 presets in it or something, or seven presets. I arrived at these seven presets. You can tune it and then save it as a preset. And I have seven of them that I have saved about 20 years ago. And never changed because I arrived at something that I really like. And occasionally I change things as I'm playing the thing, but I never actually change it. So my records have a continuity about them because there's this same bass station with its seven presets and I just dial through the seven. And I know them really well and I can tweak them as I go, but they always go back to the same setting. I never resave them or anything. But uh, yeah, it's that kind of ball. And then the filter and the oscillator come into play and it sounds horrible, really. <laughs> and just to establish, so these are home recordings, right? So you can take as long as you want and you can tweak them. And Or are you getting your sounds together and going to some third-party location where you have to pay by the hour? They are home recordings, but when I work, there are points where I take a long time and I think about it and I let stuff sit. But when I'm actually working on stuff, I don't tend to do take after take after take. I'll do a take of guitar and then I'll maybe change the guitar and do another take and I won't listen back to it and I'll maybe collect three takes and then come back to it and cut the bits out that I like. If there's anything that I really don't like on a take, I cut it out and then I put the takes together and I see what starts to work together in the track and just subtract stuff. Sometimes I just take one take of something and that will be it. But I work a lot in the studio, you know. I mean, it will be an everyday thing. I'll show up and I'll do the work. It's never kind of I'm going to take 32 takes of something. If I'm having to do that on a track, the track is wrong and I will re-record the track. But the home studio thing is funny because when I started off doing home recording in in the mid-80s, it was very kind of like, I mean, people actually said, you can't do that, which I found puzzling because I just clearly had done that. It was considered to be not as good as a studio, but the technology came along There are lots of people making recordings at home, and most of them are not that good. They would be better if they did them, I think, in the studio, but they can't afford to do them in the studio, so there's no they would be better. They wouldn't exist. So it's given people, it's enabled people 
But I've got a head start on all those people because I enabled myself, like, in the how, how many years ago is that? 35 years ago or something, you know? And so I've had a hell of a lot of practice at it. I've made an awful lot of homemade records. Well, I guess there was a little gap, right, between when, so you got dropped from the stiff label, what, in 81 or something like that? I don't really care too much about that, but I didn't get dropped from stiff records. I left stiff records. It was the most hateful place I could think of being in the world. So I left. Okay. All right. Just the fact that. Okay, so it was a pretty quick, only a couple years between when you stopped doing that and started releasing records on your own, which is, I know a lot of people like, oh, they're, they're sort of spoiled by the experience of money from third parties is being poured into something. And now, oh, now I, you know, have to just struggle to impress some different industry person as opposed to. I found it a different experience. The first records I made were done in Pathway Studios in London for stiff records. And Pathway Studios were tiny. There are hundred studios that are bigger than Pathway was. And Pathway was disgusting. It smelled of damp, <laughs> stale beer, cigarette smoke and perspiration, I think, and overheated electronic equipment. You know, and, and it wasn't a place that you wanted to spend a, a hell of a lot of time in, really. So everything was done pretty damn quickly. You know, you got in there at sort of midday and, and left at six, except if you were doing an album and you might actually get in at midday and leave at midnight, you know. But it was built by the engineer. It was like a, a homemade board. I mean, I know the engineer and I wish we could find that board because I would take that board on. It sounded great. There was nothing flash about it, but everything it had was cool and classy and worked, you know. Then I went from there to making records in, uh, I made my second album in Britannia Row, which is the Pink Floyd's place, which you think, wow, you know, this is going to be good. And they had a, a live room that was the size of a soccer pitch, you know. And the control room, they had a 48-channel SSL desk, and it was like, okay. And you hear the playback and go, is there a button on this thing that makes things exciting? Where do you, is there a switch you can throw or something? Because nothing sounded, it wasn't the right place to make the kind of records I wanted to make. And clearly we weren't going to make the kind of records I wanted to make because we had a producer who didn't want to make records like that. He had his own agenda. So that wasn't a happy experience for me. It was done very quickly, though. I mean, it took three weeks to make the second album. Then the third album, we went into a, a residential recording studio in the south of England and recorded there, and then it was finished off at DJM, and it was mixed at Air Studios. And, you know, there was a bit more time, but I didn't think what I was doing was as good. I, I felt that like I had lost my direction. I really felt that as time went on, everyone had their input, and 
my input into what I was doing kind of lessened because, like, I was not strong. I also had a, an alcohol problem, so it was very frustrating. After that, I started recording a record for Stiff Records in, I think, Battery Studios in North London. And, you know, these places were properly equipped with, like, engineers and second engineers, you know, tape op and everybody and uh, the producer and somebody to get the pizza and someone to field the phone calls and people to set up the microphones and like. But I never enjoyed that. I always preferred the pathway kind of place where it was a bit more ramshackle. So you actually like setting up the microphones yourself and things. Is that part of it? If you don't do that, you've got nothing. Because you might think you've got great art and you've got your songs and you've got your lyrics and you've got all these wonderful concepts and conceits. But in fact, Without sound, you've got nothing. You're like a painter without paint. When we were preparing for this, that you had asked, do we have to actually spend that long time talking about the songwriting itself? Because that's the least interesting part of it. Did I say that? Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's not that it's not interesting. It's like in order to convey this, you have to deal with sound. Sound is your medium. Unless there is a sound, there is nothing to hear. So, yes, I choose the microphones. I place the microphones. I set my sounds. That's what I love doing, you see. Some people hate all that, and they get some other guy to do that, you know. But this is my thing. I'm like an abstract expressionist, but instead of paint, it's sound. So does that also extend to including others' performances? That on this song, what, it's just your wife, Amy, singing some backups and that's the rest is just you or did you get other people in to do this one on that song it is actually just me and amy and most of it is me because it started off as a different song standing sunday morning it started off as a as a completely different song and i abandoned that but i kept coming back because i like the track different different melody different lyrics but it was the you wanted to keep the yeah it had this Piano. There was something so broken about it in a, in a way, but I don't know. It was groovy, but broken. You know, the piano and the acoustic guitar, uh, the combination of the two of them makes me think of broken bottles in a gutter somehow. Well, we mentioned the prominent synths, and there's some a little bit of like little surf guitar riff. That, dun, 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 you know, the, the whole song really. Ex- even though it runs, what, 3.39, we're sort of done by the time we get to two and a half minutes. And then you've got this sort of extended outro of just let's play with the sound. Um, but like, as you say, there's a surf guitar that doesn't actually come in until after the vocal finished. You know, it's an instrumental Well, I could have faded it after, you know, but I didn't want to do that. I liked it the length it was. Do you find it too long? Oh, no, I like I like the, but that just shows that the priority here is not so much the story, which, as you've described, is just here's some little scenes of England, but it is the, it's about the groove, the atmosphere that you set up, which could go 10 minutes, frankly. That, that is the story, because... 
Stories are not just told by words. Stories are told by sounds, by the whole evocation, if you like, is what tells the story. It's not over once the singing stops. The story is still being told. Mm -hmm. You're in this place. You are in this place, and you're not leaving this place for another minute or whatever it is. Well, it's funny that so many of the you know, fairly small amount of lyrics here talk about sounds, a car horn, there's seagulls making noise, but those are not the sounds that we're hearing. You're just referring to some sounds while we're listening to some other sounds. Yeah, sure. Yes, that's true. I'd not thought of that, actually. Yes. It's this kind of cold. It's like I wanted this coldness and everything's slightly disconnected. It's like we've watched too much TV and lived this poor life for too long and our senses have been blunted and we cannot make a real human connection anymore. It's in the music. It's as I say, you know, together, the piano and the guitar, that I just think of broken vodka bottles in a gutter. <laughs> and your comment about our relation to technology so the rhythm section you're playing the the tambourine with your hand because sometimes it's actually not quite on the beat which is cool given that under that is this little drum machine pattern with little clave sounds in it or something yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's what i call a boss and over beat box I think it's an ace tone, but it might be a Korg mini pops. I've got a lot of those beatboxes. I kind of collect them. Okay, so it's not software. It's something from 1985 or whatever that you have lying around. Is that? From 1975, yeah. And some of it I recorded on a Porter studio. The bass and the, and the beatbox came off a Porter studio. Like an actual cassette one? Or, you're, or these are new digital... Set Tascam 424, which I mentioned elsewhere on the album quite a lot. Auto Studios are great in their limitation and this crush that they have. I recall the bass on a port studio. I was going to re-record it later. I thought, oh, I can do a lot better than that. And honestly, I started to do it, and I could not get the spirit of that original bass line and feel, you know, and... And even the sound of it, I couldn't get it to sit in that way that that sits in it, you know. So I kept the one that I had. Well, let's move on to get a slightly different, but it has some of the same ramshackle spirit to it. You had picked in Another Drive in Saturday by Reckless Eric and Amy Rigby. It's from the week. I didn't mean to do that. I mean, someone else chose Another Drive in Saturday. I don't know if you did or whether Robert Vickers did. Oh, okay. They said another drive in Saturday, and I said, yeah, I've always... You know, when I wrote that song, I, I, we were trying to write songs for this album, and Amy would go upstairs and write the songs, but at that time, she wasn't that interested in the recording process, so she would bring the songs down to me, and I was basically recording them and she would come in and play a few things and like i would be the one that was putting it all together 
It was very funny. The process of making three albums together with Amy was like by the third one, she was coming and she's going, right, I've got this keyboard part and it goes like this. And I want, what I want you to do is this, this and this. And I go, oh, okay. You know, I'm thinking, wait a minute. You know, what are you butt out? <laughs> you know, go away. This is my thing. <laughs> it was funny, but it was good. It was great. But with this one, I had this idea of it. And I said, well, it sort of goes like this. She said, yeah, but you've got to finish it. And she actually made me go into her room and write it, you know, and keep writing like, write another verse and you need a bridge here. You haven't got much of a bridge going on. What have you got here? How does it go? Where does it go? She just made me put it together. My songs are simple. I I don't like complication. You know, I've got more and more simple and I write stuff and take most of it away. I chuck out more than there is there. But with that one, I remember like having to write it until it was done.
All right. So again, a really attention grabbing sound layer that you've set up just to start with this, this flanged guitar and you're smearing up to start with that. We're going to sort of disorient you right away. We probably played an awful lot of guitars through an echo unit Mm -hmm. and they were out of tune rather than actually sort of using something to flange the guitars to give that modulation in it. I think that it's a lot of out of tune guitar. Okay. So that really that bow now, 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 now is actually not affected. That sure sounds like it's through something. I always think I'll remember everything, but you never do. And it's no good remembering it because you go, I'm going to write this down, all the settings, so that you can do exactly the same thing on another record. I love that sound. And you're going to get the same sound. You'll never get the same sound. There's all kinds of things that are incrementally different, like the temperature, the barometric pressure is different. The tuning of something is just slightly different. There's a tone somewhere that is just slightly different. There's a microphone that's moved slightly, half an inch. They don't make a a scrap of difference on their own, but add them all together, these incremental changes, and there is a big change. That's my theory on it. So that's why you'll never make, you'll never be able to recreate something, I don't think. Do you ever do demos for songs at this point anymore? Or it's always just you're writing it in the studio because, as you said, getting just the chords and the words is, is only about, you know, one eighth of the effort. I like demos that are just done on a phone, you know, and you're just sort of like going, okay, it sounds a bit like this, and it's in the key of G, and you just mention the chords, then play the idea and and don't kind of get worked up because you can blow it all out in the demo and you have all these great ideas, but they're done crappily, and then you want to sort of, you, you have to try and, recreate those crappy ideas but he's he's trying to sort out there was something in the crappiness that really worked so you're trying to keep that but you're trying to make it a bit more workable and and acceptable even you know and and you lose more than you gain so it's great if you can get the idea and keep the idea in your head and then just execute it to a standard um, quickly and keep it fresh and it not be, it sounds like a demo, though I haven't been accused of most of my records sound like the demos or something. But I want that kind of weird freshness to them. I didn't actually think about the logistics of why you would be recording based on a Porta studio. Is it because you weren't in your regular location I mean, was that like a part of a demo or is that a conscious recording choice? No, it was a recording choice. A lot of what I'm doing, I don't spend the time getting things to be exact because I have that possibility, you know, because I'm not paying studio fees. It's much more in the nature of of experimenting and trying stuff out. And I started doing some stuff with a Porter studio because I'd done some stuff, some of Amy's demos, her old demos, she used to use a Porter studio all the time. And then I sort of, we were transcribing stuff, and while it was there, I started recording on it. 
I started to like it, but I found the limitations a little bit frustrating. And, you know, in a way, the limitations were quite good. The struggle was a good, there was something good about it, you know. And I like the way it made things sound. I like the way it makes bass guitars sound for some things, not for everything. But particularly if you're doing stuff with a pick, it seems to do something good for it. It makes it filthy in a way. It gives it a certain kind of crush. It's certainly not hi-fi. It's what people would call lo-fi. Now, I have a thing about hi-fi and lo-fi and all this, and people listen to a track, they go, oh, yeah, it's really lo-fi. What they don't realise is that there may be an element that is very lo-fi, but there's also another element that is not lo-fi at all, and it's the juxtaposition of this. So you're going through the fives, if you like, you know, from low to high all the time. Let me play the beginning of the chorus here to so we can talk about that. This vocal delivery sounds very kinks, even in its sound. And maybe this is one of the lo-fi aspects you're talking about. It's another driving Saturday in 73. I live my life the day. You're kind of blowing out the speaker a little bit. Like, do you remember even how you're doing that? That type of way, yeah, just a, some sort of like a Larkin, a TLA, Tony Larkin audio compressor. Um, Probably we used to use 57s, SM57s, like not an expensive microphone, and overload really. There's a lot of, you know, overloading things going on. Well, and even the choice of vocal range that you're using for that is like, and the way that you're singing it, as you said, it doesn't sound like this is the ninth take. It sounds like I'm just going to do it. And if it sort of squirms around pitch wise, you're not going to fix that. That's part of the point. And it, it makes it sound pleasingly retro. This is a kind of excitement that I miss. I, don't, I never worry about the pitch of things. I enjoy it. What I like to hear is, imagine if you were watching someone on a tightrope between two very high buildings and they're going to go across there and there's no safety net and it's 100 floors up and you're looking and like, well, that guy goes across there. If he just set off from one end of it to the other and just walked across, you know, (laughs) and he walked across and, You'd be very disappointed. You you want him to get out in the middle and you want him to wobble. You don't want him to fall, but you do want him to wobble. And I always feel that it is not perfection that does it. The great moments, there are great moments where a band locks in and they're suddenly tight, and it's going, and it's like it's bang on, and it's just great. But you'd never reach that moment if you hadn't got the moment before where they were a bit loose, and it's almost like, come on, we could have just, you know, and then they get there. There's a moment, there's a version of I saw standing there from the BBC by the Beatles, where they get into the the instrumental break and it's kind of a bit lackluster. 
And you hear George is struggling for it with the guitar break, and the band is kind of... Mm-mm. And John Lennon, it's like he's almost like he comes screaming in from the back of it and drives it with this guitar riff. He's going... And he's actually screaming as he does it, and it pushes the whole band and they click into it. And then you've got greatness, but you wouldn't have had that if you hadn't had that bit that was a little bit lackluster. And I always think when someone don't quite hit a note and then they make it, that's exciting. But when someone hits the note, it's kind of like, I mean, most of the time you want people to hit the notes, but occasionally there's a note that doesn't get hit until the last minute. And that is the excitement. Someone actually conquers adversity. They wobble, but they didn't fall. Well, I'm trying to reflect on how that might apply to... So here I put two and a half minutes in where you enter... In my notes, I put cheese blues country. Let's, let's hear this transition. So you go into this very loose, very ragged kind of thing with just, you know, the occasional. But then when the ba ba ba's come in, which there's not actual horns in this song, right? It's just sort of you put so many vocals that it sounds like horns or or is it keyboard horns? We almost go ba 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 I can't remember now, actually. It's probably keyboards under the singing just to thicken it up, but it certainly has the same effect that if you pulled out a full horn section. There's maybe a piano in there, but I'm not sure. Play oh, sure. There's the, there's the rock piano that juk, juk, juk. The piano comes out a little more later doing that rock and roll, but it's pretty slow rock and roll thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's what I call the, the Mandrax beat. You don't have Mandrax over there. You have Quaaludes. I always love this, like, you know, I think it should be a fast rock and roll beat, but I love this slightly too slow. Like, you don't give a flying fuck, you know. It's like, I don't give a damn about this. And just There's some menace about that. It's really a lot more... um it's almost confrontational. It's like, you want us to go fast, but we're not going to go fast. We go at this speed. It's kind of like, I came from a time when music was quite, um, dare I say, druggy, you know? And it was like, you know, dirty rock and roll bands, like underground rock and roll bands never played fast. It was kind of like what everyone wants. It's like teeny bop of stuff. You played everything slow, too slow. But so it's it's the Mandrax beat. I definitely get a Rolling Stones flavor as we go. And maybe this is, I've sort of thought about how, you know, Mick Taylor was sort of too good for the Stones. They had to go get Ronnie Wood, who, who would do more 
of these? Well, no, no, I don't <laughs> think it's a question of Mick Taylor was too good and they need someone less good. Mick Taylor was much more ethereal in a way. I mean, he was a blues player, but he was kind of ethereal where where Ronnie or, or, or even Brian, Brian, they were kind of much more visceral in the way they played, but... Mick Taylor's thing is this kind of cerebral, it's kind of, it's not down in the dirt, it's kind of sailing in the clouds, you know, different vibe. So for this song, also, like, there are no drum fills to speak of that I noticed, right? You're doing this. How can we make it sound like there might be drums on it without there being drums on it? We'd sort of put a microphone very close to a cardboard box and go, and just stuff it sounded like you're playing rides you have some symbols around at least that you know you're filling some space with yeah that. occasionally we put a symbol crash in from a cheap symbol and we put tambourines in but we'd make them very trebly very toppy we'd take all the love end out and push the top end and put them through like a play echo or a reverb spring you know and so they're going you know in the top end of it and uh, you would have that instead. But I, I love that there's no drum fills. Drum fills tell you where you are. It's interesting, this. I, I was thought Oasis had this thing on their first album. They didn't have a very good drummer, so they used a drum machine, I think, for the first album, and there's not many drum fills. So there's not much kind of navigation. Uh, I always think that album feels like you're driving snowblind into a blizzard. Because there's nothing bringing you back round to the front of the sequence again, which is what drummer shows you round. He goes, and now you're going into the chorus. Now, in terms of the story of this, again, this is one where you kind of front load the lyrics and it's autobiographical. You're quoting names of songs that were popular in 72, 73 when you're talking about. And then as you get on, like there's in this part we've been playing, you're singing something. In fact, you're, you know, you're sort of doing, but besides that, besides that, there's a lead thing that is, you know, you're sort of yelling something in the background, like as if there are lyrics that are written. It's, it's the glory of it. You see, we've talked about what it was. And by the time we get to the end of it, it's another driving Saturday in 73. I lived my life for the day. I was living for the here and now. It's all about the here and now at that point. And it seemed so glorious that you have this thing. If we'd have had, like, money and we hadn't been living in the depths of rural France, we might have hired, you know, trumpet players to go, and it was all that kind of it, razzmatazz almost, you know, and like, and I'm just going, I live for the day, for the day. And it was always the, about, I lived my life, I wanted to live my life, and I lived it for the day, for the here and the now. And it's the glory after we'd gone through this. Um, I remember when I was young, I never, well, oh, I do forget the words a lot. The first time that the songs were sung, they made me cry. Yeah, yeah. And those, you know, it was like pop music. It was in its infancy when I was. Leaving home, leaves were brown, I was green. If I fell down, I didn't make the scene. Well, at least I tried. It was all kind of like, there was a positivity about that time, you know. 
I actually nicked that a bit from when I was young by the animals. You know, you're clearly quoting a lot of things like that. That's what this whole thing is about. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when I when I left home, you know, like uh, School's Out by Alice Cooper came out the, the week that I left school and all the young dudes came out about the same time. And it felt like something so powerful. There was some power to to youth and it was glam rock. It was pre-punk, you know, and it felt like something was about to happen or was happening. And it was there was an excitement about it. Well, speaking of excitement, let's transition to the, to the third record. So this Le Beats Group Electrique. Your second or your third? We call it Beat Group Electric, you know. I thought, actually, can I tell you where that comes from? I don't know. I'll probably get you taken off air or something. I wanted to do a record and just call it Cock Rock because they used to say Cock Rock, this is Cock Rock and all that. And I, I thought that was so funny. But then I was thinking about beat groups. And, you know, like the Searchers or the Hollies or the Mojos or even the Kinks, they were beat groups. You know, that's what they were called in England in the early 60s. And uh, beat is the French word for cock. <laughs> so it was called cock rock, really. In, in a, but I, I like the idea of, like, because... No one could get the idea of these, uh, what are they called, electronic guitars. My neighbour, my, you know, when I was like 14 or 12 or something, our neighbour down the street, this old lady said, I don't like those electronic guitars. They're very tinny. Well, you can turn the tone knob down, you know. Yes, yeah, you could do. Well, you could turn her ear in, you know, mean she was like... I loved all this, and they'd always get it wrong, like, so they call them electronic. And then I liked the word electronique, and I'd just moved to France at the time when I, I'd finished that record. I recorded it in England and then moved to France. And that's, yeah, it ended up being called Le Beat Group Electrique, the Electric Beat Group. And it has a very, is this mostly recorded live to kind of two mics? Not at all. It was very particular in the way it was recorded. The drum kit is not a drum kit, which made me laugh. So someone said, like at the time, because it was the 80s, said the drums aren't loud enough. Uh, you can't hear the drums and the guitars too loud. So, well, there aren't any drums on it. So what you might call the drum kit is actually a cardboard box with a tambourine in it with a microphone in the opening of the cardboard box. <laughs> okay. And the cardboard box is sitting on top of a wire record player stand with the wire things that you put the albums on underneath. So it, it was a wire contraption. It had this peculiar resonance to it that worked with the cardboard box and you really hear that in the thwack of the drums. He was playing the drums sometimes with a pair of wire brushes or the drums of the cardboard box and sometimes with sticks. But there was the microphone in the box and the, the tambourine, everything would resonate. And there was a, a microphone over the top, actually a cheap tape recorder microphone just took all this top-end kind of stuff 
and not much else. And everything was mixed through a very old, like a, a monophonic PA mixing desk, but there were different outputs on it, even though it was monophonic. You could find different ways out of it, and I hacked into it and found ways of taking the channels out, and I recorded it onto an open reel, a reel-to-reel four-track tape recorder. So the bass was actually preamped through an old record player preamplifier and then went direct into the recording machine, which was a TAC3440. And you could plug into the microphone input, so the impedance was all mismatched. But it somehow warmed up the bass, which was like a Beatle bass, like a proper old McCartney-type Hofner bass. And my guitar, we were all set up quite close in the room, and my guitar was off at the side going through a 15-watt tube amplifier with a microphone about a foot and a half in front of it. And I did the vocals direct into the machine. We did the whole lot. Basically, we recorded the tracks on three tracks. And I did the vocals live, and they went on to their own track. And we had one track for all the overdubs. But I used an SM58, like a standard rock and roll live vocal mic for the vocals and nothing i didn't have a compressor or anything and the overdubs we would do on one track and we go okay well i'm gonna play this and then i'll stop playing this and i'll be playing the organ and then i'll stop that i'll play the maracas through this bit and you'll come in with the acoustic guitar and come in close to the mic then we'll do the backing vocal then I play the organ again and you'd get the acoustic guitar and hit that chord. And I, you know, we had it kind of scripted. We didn't rehearse it. We scripted it. We'd do it. You know, we'd have to get the whole thing on track. I thought that was fantastic, really. All right. So with all that build up, so the song that I picked from this album is called Depression. Do you have a, a- that would sound really disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> well, too bad. Here it is.
yeah. So you get the organ as well as your overdub, right? So it's a three piece, but you are you're playing the organs. You play keyboards, obviously, right? You're yeah. Sometimes well, sometimes badly. <laughs> so I mean, very nice old Beatles kind of sound here. Violent Femmes, you know, sort of did basically the same formula here in the States, just a few, you know. In, yeah, they were a bit smoother and they had suitcases rather than a cardboard box. <laughs> they sometimes do that. <laughs> they have the drummer who does not use a kit some of the times. Or I don't know if it's a cardboard box, but it's like a marching snare kind of thing rather, you know, so they can. The cardboard box has a has a real place in rock and roll. You know, Peggy Sue, it's a cardboard box used for that. I'm trying to think of other examples, but there are a lot of places where people have used cardboard boxes instead of snare drums, particularly. Any thought about pairing these lyrics with this music? <laughs> that you're doing a nice little jolly song about depression. Was this the first? Yeah, it's, it's a very sad, no, lyrically, it, it's, I thought it was, at that time, I thought it was the most truthful song that I had ever written because I suffered very badly from depression at one point. Well, for a lot of my life I have, you know, but I've managed to overcome it. But it used to come down and you would think it would never lift again. You'd think you could not imagine ever not feeling like that. And it could make you feel quite suicidal at times even, you know, though I managed to come back off of all that kind of stuff. I ended up at one point in a what they call a, a loony bin or a, a nut house or a, you know, but a mental hospital, if you like, you know, a psychiatric unit. That was early 80s, like between the, the label time and the indie time, or it was during? Um, a late 80s. Okay. I came out of that and I thought, I'm not going to succumb to the idea there's some stigma, you know, and people said, like, I actually had a girlfriend at one time who said, yeah, you have to keep quiet about this sort of stuff because I don't want anyone thinking I'm with a loony, you know? And I thought, well, tough, because you're with a fucking loony, you know? <laughs> like, it's, uh, so I realised that if I tried to sort of hide the way I was, my demeanour, people would just think, what the hell's the matter with him? But if I said, look... um, don't even think about it anymore, but just understand that if I seem a bit odd or distracted, it's because I'm actually suffering from a depression. I've got a depression, you know, because it would come and go. It would come down on me, you know. Uh, then you feel like it's never going to go. But it does eventually. But I would just have to believe that it was only a transient state, that it wasn't something that was forever this is not a permanent state don't worry about it we'll get through well and in this song you know it won't last forever but world without end forever and ever you know the, the way that it feels that actually connecting it to that churchy expression yes i think it's very <laughs> caught up with all that you know i mean because i came from a church of england family you know protestant family but I was educated in Catholic school, schools until I was 11. So I got both ends of it. I got the Protestant work ethic and coupled with the Catholic guilt, you know. 
the worst of what each one had to offer. I was quite confused, really, when I was young. And so it uh, it doesn't surprise me that the church at the end of, was it the end of the Our Father or something? Uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Well, without end, amen. Ah, uh-huh. did you think about putting an amen at the end of this song? With, with we possibly it? did, actually. <laughs> yeah, I just, as I'm saying that, I was wondering about it. It's got sort of that trash can ending of, you know, the chaos ending. The track itself was interesting because, like, I remember trying to mix it and it was just this horrible noise i mean it, it seemed like what is that you know and then you put the vocal in and it made sense which i thought was very strange you know uh, i love tracks like that where mostly they sound like a track without a vocal on you know and you think oh that's nice shame the vocal's going to go on because it's going to cover that but it was just a blur of racket you know and then you put the vocal on and it all came together well, and this goes straight into It's a Sick Sick World, which is very Buddy Holly, you know, you mentioning the drumming on the cardboard box stuff. I mean, this whole album seems to be, right, it's some kind of the music of your youth, the 60s stuff, but that deconstructed, spat out in a punk manner in 1989, which is a, a funny combination. It was right out of time. I mean, it really was not the thing that, you know, we should have been doing if we don't i mean people were horrible no one liked it when it came out people are going what's that you know and um the record label was new rose french record label and the guy said you'll never be happy until you make a proper album in a proper studio with a proper producer <laughs> and i was like i'm oh, right okay and what would you know about that exactly most artists that have spanned the the time that have at least an album or two, 1985, 1986, 1987, something that sound horribly dated. And you dodge that bullet by just doing this indie thing. That- something that was kind of, <laughs> you can't put a date on it. No, um, I did feel like I was out of time there. What people are really good at is making rules. And we all do it. But the recording industry made such huge rules about, well, that's how we do it. You know, so that your record at that time had to go, do, do, like that. You know, mine didn't. It didn't have do on it, and it didn't have on it. And it's like, this can't be. You can't do this. You can't do it like that. Well, you know, we can do it your way, or we can do it the right way. It was like, I would hear all this stuff, right? Why did we make all these rules? We don't feel comfortable unless we've, we've set parameters. But the whole thing about making music and making rock and roll music or whatever we call it, or popular music, is about busting through. To me, it's a lot of it is about busting through rules. My friend, I have a friend who, well, he's died. He died a few years ago a man called Martin Stone, 
and he was a British guitar player. He was in a lot of bands. He was in Savoy Brown. He was in a band called The Action. He was in another band called Mighty Baby. He was in the 101ers with Joe Strummer. He always remembered, like, the first he played on the first Savoy Brown album, and the cutting engineer said, I can't cut this. The guitar's distorted. <laughs> Which was not, this was before people were doing that intentionally? What? I don't understand. It was that. like 1965, you know, and they're going, they, they had never heard a, a Howling Wolf record, you know, most people. Well, all right. I mean, this playing with Joe Strummer, the people were saying the same thing to him about his vocals and trying to make him, no, sing it clearly. And in two, like, and then it sounded bad. So no, no, no. Go back to do what you're doing. It's this incredible ability people have to make rules about how you do things. But the beat group was against all that. I mean, like, if you listen in between tracks on that record, you can hear rattling teacups and buses pulling up at the bus stop outside. Very atmospheric. <laughs> well, let's just introduce our last song, and we will say goodbye. I like to send people off with one that's really catchy, really, you know, very for you, nice sounding, a little less ramshackle. So Father to the Man, the opening track from Transients 2019, a very shiny track as your tunes go. Do you have any words about that period, that album, that song before we say so long? I had a difficult relationship with my dad sometimes, but I realized that he was not a bad man. He was... um through no fault of his own, he was addicted to steroids because he'd had this chest complaint and they zapped it with a massive in the 50s, zapped it with a huge amount of steroids and then he had, they couldn't get him off them. So he was on steroids for the rest of his life, for most of his life, all his adult life and um, made him very difficult. You know, people don't really perhaps realize how bad steroids are for your all of your well-being your physical emotional mental well-being they're terrible so you know he was a difficult man he was very moody and very set in his ways he was obstinate but i said well i don't want to be like him and but you know i think he was a good man well, it's a great sentiment to send us off on. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you. Here it is. Father the Man. Right to strike Now I'm all wrong alone
Thanks so much to Eric. What a great pleasure it was to talk to him. You can find his material at RecklessEric.com or look him up on Bandcamp. He's actually got two different Bandcamp pages, one for his UK work, one for his more recent work. So other than his Captains of Industry album, that's 1984, right after he left the label, pretty much everything has been re-released under his own name. I have a couple more interviews under my belt already, one with Jason Narducci, whose current band is called Split Single, one with Laura Osnes, who is a big-time Broadway person who has now branched into country and pop music. I was supposed to yesterday talk to a Grammy-winning major artist whom you have heard of who's been around since the 80s. I don't even want to name him. He postponed it, so we'll see if it actually happens, at which point I'll tell you who it is. But hint, if you go look me up on Substack, I talk all about it. Speaking of, that is marklinsenmeyer.substack.com. I have gotten in the habit of once a month now for three months writing a little something about all the stuff I'm prepping for all of my podcasts. So if you want to know what guests I'm covering on this show in advance, many of them will be described in some way there. Plus, there might be podcast activities or other things that I'm doing that you have no idea about. So... Feel free to look that up. I hope that you would like to support what I'm doing here on this podcast. You can do so at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Even signing up for the merest per episode donation will get you ad-free episodes plus my episode notes. You can also provide support right through your Apple Podcasts app, although I cannot provide you the notes that way due to the limitations of that format. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lintz-Meyer signing off.